Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, July 3rd, we are studying James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. St. James concludes his epistle with instructions to Christians concerning their prayers, particularly in the midst of sickness, sin, and error. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, it's good to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Philippek, we are at the end of this short epistle, so any amount of context is up for grabs. What do we need to know going into the text for today? Sure. So James is writing to a group of Christians, kind of Jewish converts, actually. And these Jewish converts have been scattered from their homeland of Jerusalem or really any part of Israel, Um, first by the Babylonian conquest and then more recently by the Roman conquest. So these Jewish Christians, they're known just as in Christendom as kind of the diaspora, which is just the Greek word for scattered. They are now located throughout all the different Gentilic lands. So James is actually writing this general letter to be read in various churches or assemblies throughout these lands. Now, when many Christians think of the book of James, they tend to think of, at least as I have talked to um, several different people, they tend to, to think of faith and good works and the controversies that surround this book. Rather than getting into all the specifics of all of that, um, let me just simply say that the main purpose of James and the usefulness of James for our hearers back then and even today might just simply be summed up in the form of uh, the following question. Having been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, how are we to conduct our relationship with God and with one another? This is a pertinent question, because what James is seeing is that the diaspora have conducted their lives in a very ungodly sort of way. They have been living as though God and his salvation in Jesus Christ did not matter, and as if they mattered most. They have not honored the Lord's name in speech or conduct, and their love for God and one another is growing cold. Now, again, we're not talking about today, but the book of James, right? I mean, there's parallels all over the place here. But in James's word, he calls these double-minded. That is, they say they believe in God, but their speech and conduct and unrepentance tend to lend a different story. So, So James is writing then to admonish them, right? To give them admonition, and then having having sort of scolded them and corrected them to give them the wisdom of God in these matters of speech and conduct. So James 5, um, what we're going to look at today, 5, 13 through 20, it's, it's part of a larger conversation, really, that James has been having with the diaspora, specifically concerning their unholy speech toward God and one another. When they face trials, their temptation has been to say, I'm being tempted by God. That is, back in chapter 1, in essence, it's kind of like this. 
well, God must want me to fall into sin. He must want me to fail. He must want to, me to turn away from him. He must not love me because look at all the suffering I'm going through and that he has laid upon me. To which James has to say something that amounts to, whoa, 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 wait a minute here, guys. His actual words are, God cannot be tempted, and therefore he himself tempts no one. That's back in chapter 1. And then James continues to point out numerous times how they've spoken evil of one another uh, and judged one another by their own unrighteous standards rather than the righteous standard of God's holy word. So hence James tells them multiple times in chapter 1 and 2 to bridle their tongue. He has a whole discussion on bridling tongues and, and tongues in, in chapter 3. From the mouth comes blessings and curses, James said. These things ought not be so, brothers. He is so emphatic about that. And then in chapter 4, what we've probably just studied here is that he has admonished them to actually draw near to God and to stop speaking evil against one another. So up to this point, basically the first four chapters has been James admonishing the diaspora at every turn for the improper speech. But now in in chapter 5, he's actually going to give them the wisdom of God so that they know how to speak and conduct themselves with respect to God and, and one another. So James chapter 5, 13, and 20 can kind of be thought of as the conclusion of 1 through 4, where James has said, don't do this in the face of suffering and evil. Now in James 5, rather do this as you wait for the coming of our Lord, who has implanted his word in us, which is able to save our very souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is a lot of positive instruction here in this section. And, and as you said, there is there, there's a lot of back and forth between don't do this, do this. And he is he's bringing his epistle here to a close with here's, here's what to do. So with that, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's the text for today, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. So, Pastor Philippek, what, what we've got here, it seems, is, is very much related to the section before, which was very much founded upon the coming of the Lord, the last day. And this really is a, a theme that is there throughout the book of James. In the introductory episode to this series, I had uh, Dr. Curtis Giese, and he talked about this. He's, he's writing the Cordia Commentary on the book of James, and he brought this out for me, and I don't know that I would have noticed it all over the place, but it's there, the very eschatological nature of this book, the focus on the coming of the Lord, and it's definitely here at the end. So, so how is this coming of Jesus on the last day, how is it shaping our lives right now for James here in this text? 
Absolutely. The, the eschatological nature of this, or Jesus coming again, James has been arguing this whole time that it has a very transformative nature of who we are as Christians and how we live our lives. You could say we live our lives, yes, in the balance of he who has come and has ascended to the Father's right hand, while at the same time then the one who is going to come again to free us finally and forever from sin, death, and the devil. So we have an eye always for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation, John, right? Uh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I mean, this is the cry of the Christian. And it does shape, and James realizes that it shapes how you live, and that, and that actually matters. So as we had talked about just a few moments ago, the diaspora has been living as though it didn't matter, right? I mean, they've been blaming God for being in the midst of suffering and tribulation and saying that he has been the one who's tempting them as if he's trying to get them to fall away. Well, Jesus kind of said, that's improper speech. That is not how we speak. Not about God, and then he'll get to one another in just a minute. So James then, now in chapter 5, is directing their attention to what proper speech actually is. So James directs them that when you're facing suffering and evil, here's actually what you do. Instead of blaming God, you are to call upon God and to trust that he will actually provide for you and sustain you in the midst of tribulation and suffering. Well, this is nothing new, right? We've been reading through all of the, the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, then you know James is just giving you the wisdom of the psalmists and others. In Psalm 55, verse 15, for example, God invites the hearers to call upon him in the day of trouble. He will deliver them and they shall glorify him. Well, Jesus himself, right? The night before he is undergoing intense suffering and crucifixion, he prays in the upper room multiple times for his disciples, yes. And even before that, John chapter 12, now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name, right? Jesus is praying as he goes into suffering and through suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22, right? So, so James is telling us, telling them, that in the face of suffering, they should not turn away from God and blame God, but rather turn toward him in prayer, because... The one who has been high and lifted up on the cross for them is coming again in glory to free them. Theirs is the victory over sin, death, and the devil. Why would you blame the one who gives victory over these things? So he's encouraging them actually to to cast their cares upon the one who can actually do something about it and has done something about it. And the same thing is true not just in times of sorrow, but also in times of joy. Notice that he he talks about suffering, but then immediately turns to anyone who is cheerful. So the same is true for times of joy. Don't turn toward yourself in those times. Don't pat yourself on the back saying, look at me, look at what I've done, Look look at all the things that have gone right because of XYZ. No, rather in times of joy, recognize and praise God that he is actually living and working and active in in your life for your benefit. Or in James's word back in chapter 1, recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from above, the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Recognize that God is at work in times of sorrow and joy. He has loved you unto death, and he will come again 
to free you even from this and the joys that you are experiencing right now are even by his hands. That's what James is directing his hearers toward. Mm. I mean, he's, he's basically preaching, it sounds like, on the second commandment here. Luther's explanation from the catechism comes to mind as to how we are to use God's name, that we would call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. And, and word for word, two of those things right here from the book of James. This is what God's name is for, rather than that improper speech, as you brought out from chapter 1, of accusing God of some sort of evil against us, rather to recognize that God's name is only full of good for us, and therefore we call upon him. We call upon him when we are in trouble and in times of of joy. I've, I've heard it put two ways that there's there's two basic prayers that the Christian has. The first, when it's in times of suffering, there is James has, the first prayer is, Lord, have mercy. And then in times of, of cheer, as James says, to sing praise, the other one, God be praised. And in any and every situation, the Christian has those two prayers, those, those two ways of using God's name rightly and joyfully at their disposal. And James puts them before those two ways before his hearers now. He also then directs prayer for each other. And, and that comes up in a multitude of ways here in this passage. And the first one in, in verse 14 probably requires a, a bit of unpacking because there's some terms in there that we want to make sure we understand. So in verse 14, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, and then they do so, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the two things that really stand out here are, well, who are these elders of the church who are called to pray, and what's this matter of anointing with oil that we've got here? Sure. So when you hear the word elder, we tend to think of um, those who are older and have experience and wisdom, right? Um, sort of like an older person or, or something like that. Or the other thing you might think of in, in the church is a man who has been elected through a congregation, uh, a voters' assembly, to assist the pastor in certain duties. Well, neither one of these really captures the regular use of the word elder um, throughout the Acts of the Apostles or the Epistles. Um, the, the latter, the, the man of the congregation who um, is elected to help the pastor, it's somewhat foreign to Scripture, and what I mean by that is, is that you don't find any voters' assembly, you don't find any um, office of elder like that, uh, in the sense of the word, um, in, in that way. The New Testament doesn't really establish that. Our church polity does, um, but that's something, you know, kind of a, to be aware of uh, that, that we might bring to the text. Uh, the Greek word uh, here is presbyteros, which, which is, uh, yes, translated elder, and it, and it does occur in the, in the New Testament to mean older person, uh, someone who has wisdom or experience in something. But it, it also, um, and I would argue more frequently than we're willing to admit, is, is synonymous with the word pastor. I'll give you two poignant examples, and, and we can walk through this even in James especially, but two poignant examples, Acts chapter 20 and Titus chapter 1. I mean, in Acts chapter 20, right, and this is, this is a context for some of these founding of the different churches, you know, Ephesus, um, Corinth, all these different things, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, all the different stuff that happens, happens in Acts. So it, it's right to kind of look at this from Acts because of that establishment. So in Acts chapter 20, uh, you have um, something that, that's going on in 2017, right? Luke tells 
us that St. Paul called the elders, well, there's your Greek word, presbyters of the church, to come to him. So you might think, okay, he called a bunch of the older men with wisdom. But later on, St. Paul then is talking to these men, and in, in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to, and listen to this context, to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, and then the Greek word, um, episcopus, overseer, right, or, or, or bishop, um, to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So notice that St. Paul's actually not just talking to older persons, he's talking to those who actually are spiritually charged to care for God's flock, his sheep. He's talking to the under-shepherds or, or the pastors, right? Titus chapter 1 does a very similar move here. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, St. Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order to appoint elders. Well, there's your elder term, presbyteros, in every town as I directed you. Now, in verse 7, St. Paul says, for an overseer, as a God's steward, must be above reproach. But unlike Acts 20, the word overseer there that, that gets translated into English, it's not even episcopus. Actually, the word there is poimane, um, shepherd. And in Latin, this is where we get the word pastor. That, that's actually what, um, what in Latin um, pastor is, right? A, a shepherd. So uh, the, Pastor Apple, all of this long discussion then to simply say, let's pay attention to the, to the text and what's actually being said. So when we're talking of elders of the church and praying over and things like that, this is very specific context. So what James is actually directing is that someone called the pastors together who will pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, anointing with oil um, has several different uses throughout Scripture. I mean, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, it, it's used to mark uh, certain items of the tabernacle. You know, we, we kind of talked about this back in the day when, when you and I were doing the uh, tabernacle study and all of the different pastors were doing the tabernacle study here. Uh, but it, the oil set things apart for specific uses in the temple by which the people of God were going to be made holy, right? So, so those vessels were set up, apart by anointing with oil. Well, you see, um, kings anointed with oil, First uh, Samuel 10 and, and for Samuel 16, um, God uses oil to anoint Saul and David, indicating that these are the ones whom God set apart as, as king. But here in James, this is more of a, a Mark 6 use, obviously, that when Jesus sends out the 12, um, he sends them out to heal the sick by anointing them with oil. So anointing with oil has uh, in it a, a setting apart for medicinal purposes. Anointing with oil is just that. It's a setting someone apart for healing in the name of our Lord. It marks the one whom the Lord is going to heal according to his good and gracious will. So all of that then, to simply say that these passages have great benefit to us because they remind the diaspora and us that through our life experiences, sorrows and joys, and we have all of them, we are not alone in the midst of these things. We are knit together as the mystical body, the beloved Holy Bride, Christ Church, which includes both pastor and people together. That's the church, right? God's Holy Church. And when one suffers... The whole church, the whole body suffers. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. So rather than turning away from God in the midst of, of suffering and joy by complaining or, or boasting about yourself, we Christians are, as James said, to turn to God in prayer in times of sorrow, to sing his praise in times of joy, but also to receive God's gifts of comfort, hope, and joy from the mouth of, of the 
of fellow Christians, pastors, and we'll get to people here in just a minute that come that come in here, and James as well. Um, the comforting word of Christ spoken by his church, we are to derive comfort from that. By this, we see that our lives are not our own, and that we're not an island, and that it's more than just my private sufferings. We're more than individuals. It's not just me or me and God. Rather, we belong one to another, and we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, even unto death. I think so. I've got a couple of thoughts here, Pastor Philippek. the The way that you've described this, I think, is is just wonderful. That we've seen in verse thirteen, uh, I as an individual Christian, in my suffering and cheer, I cry out to God, asking for help, singing His praises. But it's not just me and Jesus. This is this is Jesus and His Church, and so the joys and the sufferings that I have as an individual Christian are shared by my brothers and sisters in Christ and so we pray for each other and that's the that's the real benefit of something like a, a church prayer list it's not about yeah. getting the the right number of people to pray for you so that you tip the scales in your favor or something like that but it is about the church sharing these joys and burdens together and so praying for one another and and a very big part of that is your pastor praying for you now, so I, I've got a couple of questions on that, though. In terms of, of particularly the matter of anointing with oil, you, you said that the anointing with oil is is marking this person as one particularly whom we're asking the Lord to heal, going to, to Mark yep. chapter 6 with the apostles to that they're sent out to do. Now, ooh, I think maybe I've been asked to do this one time as a pastor. I, I think once. Is, is this something, this matter of anointing with oil, is that something we should still be asking our pastors to do today? What do you think? Yeah, it's very interesting um, that even though we might be sometimes squeamish about certain things in, in cultural contexts and things like this, this is not one of those things that's necessarily cultural, even for Lutherans. I mean, our just to, just to look at our literature on this, right, our, our hymnal, our LSB stuff, our agendas— our, our pastoral care companions all have this kind of right in this, that, that this, is, this is able to be used in the context of, of, of illness. And, and so is a house blessing, for that matter. Uh, this mm-hmm. is another thing that exists, right? The blessing of, of a house that you move into or, or that you just want uh, the comfort and, and, and of God's holy word. I'll just say that, the comfort of God's holy word. To, to be upon you and to be upon your house, to be upon you. So these things, these things they actually exist um, still today, and they are encouraged to be used, not somehow that in, a, in a, maybe a second commandment way that, oh, if I anoint you with oil, well, then you'll just get better. Well, no, but this is, this is the one whom the Lord has called, the one whom the Lord has marked. It, it's also uh, part of the, the church rite and baptism. You're, you're, uh, it's just not foreign to the Church to um, not only baptize you, but after uh, having been baptized, uh, to anoint you with oil. As, as one who is set apart, um, one who is marked with the cross of Christ on your forehead and on your heart, right? So, so this is all that set-apart language then. So, so having this oil is just, this is the Lord's 
whom he loves. It's, it's an anointing and a marking. So, so this is the one whom the Lord, we wish the Lord to, to heal, and to ones that we wish uh, the blessings of God to be upon. So these things still happen and, and are encouraged to be used, though we might um, not think of about that uh, in, in our current context. Right. It's it's not it's not something we think about, but there would be nothing wrong with a Christian calling their pastor and say, Pastor, would you come pray for me? And I think we certainly still do that. We we know that. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when a when a person gets sick, one of the first things they do, and rightly so, is they let their pastor know and they say Pastor, will you pray for me? And and this matter of anointing with oil, it, it doesn't it doesn't rise to what we would call, say, a sacrament, as we would understand no. baptism and the Lord's Supper. But it it is something that that maybe we could helpfully recover and make use of, not in some sort of magic way, but just as a, a recognition, yeah, that this this person is set apart for our prayers, and we are asking for God to to help this person. And, yeah, I mean, it's just something to maybe not be so squeamish about. We don't want to attach any kind of magical power to it. I think, I think maybe that's part of our, our, our struggle as Lutherans is that we're afraid of the misuse of it. And so we sure. even shy away from the use of it. But, but we don't have to I, do that. Go ahead. I know. I, I think that's fair. And maybe, maybe um, just the, the quick way to say it is simply like this. It may be foreign to us, but it is biblical. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, just, you know, just thinking through my own pastoral practice, I have been called many a time to do a house blessing. And you're right, it's, and I'm, I'm flipping through my pastoral care companion. I can't find it now, but it's in here somewhere where there is a, a, a right in here about an anointing with oil, because I know I've used it before. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it, it's something, it's something that, that, yeah, I mean, don't be afraid of this. Uh, don't be afraid of, of asking your pastor for something like this. Again, not as some sort of magic rite, but as a way of supporting each other as, as the body of Christ. And, and just briefly before the break, Pastor Philip, I've got about a minute here. In terms of asking your, your pastor to pray for you, uh, why, why is it important particularly—and it's not that the pastor's prayers are, are somehow more heard than anyone else's, but, but why is it important to ask your pastor to pray for you? Um. He's the instrument of God. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, just as, as quickly as I can, uh, the Father in John sends the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, right, to accomplish salvation. So this is Jesus' ministry. When Jesus ascends, arises and ascends, he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. So in the apostles, in the pastors, is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. So you might see the pastor, um, and you might hear the pastor speak, but through this, this instrument, right, Jesus is actually at work. Jesus is um, praying. Jesus is baptizing. Jesus is feeding you with his body and blood. You hear this man speaking, but God is at work um, through him as he has ordained him and called him back even in, in, we can go to various places, but John chapter 20, 19 and following. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 3rd, and we are studying James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, we we left off at verse 15, where James continues this topic of prayer. And he says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. What is this prayer of faith that James is talking about? Sure. So this happens kind of throughout Scripture, and I guess the, the clearest example that I can give you and maybe comment on it then is, is from Luke 18, right? You've got the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So the two men go to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The, ter- the Pharisee, as standing off by himself, prays, you know, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, uh, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, right? So I'm reading it in a voice goes pat, 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 pat on the back. You know, look at all I've done, look at all that I am. But all the tax collector can do is stand far off, not even lifting up his eyes to heaven, not even, can't even look at God, but, but simply beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus comments on this saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For the, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who exalt, humbles himself will be exalted. So the reason I use that one is, is kind of that contrast between improper speech and proper speech. Um, the prayer of faith recognizes the reality that exists, that God says about me, and that um, God says about himself. So the reality is, and, and we say um, this kind of each week, we acknowledge the same reality uh, in, in a language that's familiar, familiar to our hearers. I'll say it this way. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities. Or we are by nature sinful and unclean. We sin against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone, right? We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. So it's, it's that acknowledgement of the reality of, of I am a sinner, I cannot change my situation. I don't have the power or strength to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat the devil on my own. It's, it's echoing a lot of um, 2 Corinthians uh, 12. Um, three times I pleaded to the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Right? So I pleaded, I, I prayed to the Lord, and, and what happened? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So this is just that you recognize your weakness. You recognize who you are, but not just recognizing that, but also then in prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, right? Recognizing not just your weakness, but who God is. Um, you could say confession of sin, confession of faith, um, but you, you would get at the same thing. But then really the reality of that is, well, I am weak and powerless, 
to do anything about this. There is one who is strong. There is one who is mighty. There is one who is able to save. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. He has loved me unto death. He has engraved his name, my name in the palms of his hand, not with gold or silver, but with his own precious blood. And by his innocent suffering and bitter death, by his triumphant resurrection, by his ascension into heaven, I have peace with God. I have victory over sin, over disease, over death, over the devil. My life ends with my Lord in the simple words of the Easter greeting, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I mean, that's the victory cry, right? So to recognize that is the prayer of faith. To recognize that I am weak and powerless, but there is one who is strong, mighty and able to save, even in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of joy. His name is Jesus Christ. And every good gift is given to me by God in him. It's, it's what is later deemed as in this text, the prayer of the righteous one. Righteous doesn't mean like I've, I've done a whole lot of good things in my life. That would be, um, <laughs> that would be back to the prayer, right? I thank you. Uh, I'm not like that man. But Jesus says, which one go, goes back justified? Which one is declared right before God? Which one is righteous? I tell you, it's the one who smote his breast and couldn't even lift up his head, but cried out to me, Lord, have mercy, right? Or, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, to, to, put, to put it in an even different passage. So that, that's really what the, the prayer of, of faith is, is it's all about. It, it's acknowledging the truth of who I am and who God is. And so it, it's, it's not some sort of prayer of faith in the sense that, I need to work up within myself the right kind of faith or the right amount of faith, or if I somehow believe hard enough that God will heal this sickness physically, some sort of, uh, to put it maybe a bit crassly, some sort of name it and claim it type right. prayer. But but rather, ultimately, a confidence, as you said, knowing who I am before the Lord, but knowing who he is for me ultimately the one who will raise me from the dead on the last day. There's that, that eschatological emphasis again. Exactly, exactly. You can have the faith of a mustard seed and by no means lose your reward, because even the faith of a mustard seed clings ever only to Jesus. Even the faith of a child clings. You know, this is, this is the whole child um, analogy, all that stuff that Jesus does. But it's really just totally and utterly dependent upon him and him alone for, for life in this world and then life again in eternity. All that you need comes from him. So as, as James continues, we're, we're still thinking here in the, the life of the Church together, saints holding each other up, bearing each other's burdens, rejoicing and suffering with one another. And we're still in the context of a prayer, it sounds like, but he does shift a little bit from matters of sickness now to matters of sins, sins I think, against each other, and talking about confessing sins to each other and forgiving each other and praying for each other within that context. How, how is James teaching here in verse 16 in particular? How is that helpful for our life as a church? Yeah, so we have also made a bit of a shift to, we were talking about the pastor and, and individual person relationship, but now we're, we're shifting even to the larger body and, and, and even to the context of sin as well. So as we talked about in verse 14, our lives are more than private, um, and we are more than individuals. It's not just me, or even me and God. Rather, we belong to one another, and as I said, we are to love one another as God has loved us in Christ. That is, we are to see every single person as one for whom Christ has suffered, bled, and died. 
It includes then being um, compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and, and patient. All those fruits of the Spirit, all of God at work in you. It means that, yeah, you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, um, but rather when you sin against someone, and you and I and the hearers do sin against one another, um, that he who is without sin cast the first stone. When we sin against someone, we are to, by God's grace, see our sin, lament our sin, and confess our sin. That is to look our brother in the eye and say, I was wrong when I said that. I was absolutely wrong when I did that. I know that it hurt you, and for that I am sorry. Please forgive me. I want to do better. And it means for the person who's hearing that confession, um, that you've sinned against, that you bear the other's sin and forgive as the Lord forgave you. We forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. It means that, that your cancer or your Parkinson's disease or your Alzheimer's or your dementia or your COVID-19 or, or, or your addiction or whatever other illness that you are battling is of great concern to me. Please don't hide it. Please don't feel like I'm just going to spread it throughout all the world, and I just want to hear your gossip. That's not uh, what Christ Church is really about. It, it, it's about um, rejoicing and suffering together and coming and hearing the holy words of Christ, who is victory and life for us. So, so please, tell me, because I, I, I do suffer with you. I'm in this with you. We are bound together in Christ. It, it means, yeah, that I may very well have to stop what I am doing. It means that I might have to sacrifice my time and more uh, on a Sunday morning than just saying, oh, how are you? And then thinking in my head, oh, please don't say that. Please don't say that, because I just really want to be nice and move on. No, it means that I might have to, have to not move on, right? I might have to stop and, and listen to your burdens and, and pray with you and pray for you. Um, because the Lord delights in hearing the prayers of his saints, the believers of Christ, and, and he's attentive to their cries for mercy. So it means, you know, that God has given us to be a community of, of the baptized, of fellow saints, of fellow belie- believers who hear the confession of sins, um, who comfort each other with the gospel, who pray with and for each other, and uh, that we actually go and, and seek um, those who are not in our midst, who are also baptized, uh, to restore them um, to, to God's holy word by speaking his law and gospel, his word of truth, even when they err. So, so kind of all of that is encompassed in this. I, I think one of the most beautiful illustrations of what James is talking about here is found in the service of Compline within our, within our hymnal, oh, yeah. where, the, where the, the leader of the the service, often a, often the pastor, but sometimes if it's used in a different context, perhaps not, where, where first the leader says, I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. And then the gathered congregation speaks the Lord's forgiveness to him that leader, and then they, in turn, speak the same confession and hear the same forgiveness from the leader. It's, it's just a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what James is talking about here, that, that as you said, I mean, I don't, I don't think the, the relationship between a pastor and parishioner has been left behind, but it is broadened here, this matter of confessing sins to one another. I, I try to teach this 
in in confirmation classes, when we're talking about the confession of sins, the the fifth chief chief part, that it, you know we talk about confessing all sins to God, even those we don't know, and we we confess before our pastor those sins which particularly trouble us. But I, I think we also should confess to each other when we've sinned against each other so that we can extend that same forgiveness as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that that reading from Compline is just a, a beautiful example of that within the worship life of the Church. Absolutely. So, Pastor Philippek, then, what James does, and again, he's, he's still thinking along this lines of prayer. We, we talked about the prayer of the righteous person, how it's related to the prayer of faith. And then James, as he's done throughout his epistle, will bring up an Old Testament example. And the Old Testament example he gives us here is Elijah. So, why is he bringing up Elijah here? What does he do? Well, what's the example of Elijah? Elijah's got quite the, the account in the Old Testament. What's the specific example he's bringing up, and how's he making use of it here at the end of his epistle? Sure. So maybe before I say that, uh, a word of disclaimer. It's easy for us Christians to fall into what you had said earlier, that name it and claim it stuff. Like, look Mm -hmm. at Elijah, he did this, and this happened. So if you do this, this happens. But that's not exactly how the text, if you're paying very careful attention to the words, and thus the context of it, it's not exactly how this example is being used. Elijah is being held up as an example, uh, hearkening back to 1 Kings 16 through 18 here. Um, He's held up as an example of what a prayer of faith, because that's what we've been talking about, what does a prayer of faith or a righteous person actually look like? And though he is a prophet of God, unlike us, notice the words uh, there associated with Elijah, a man with our nature in 17. This, This is where... you know. Paying careful attention to the text helps, right? So what that means then is that though a prophet of God, unlike us, still he's like us. He's a sinful human being, just like you, just like me. Okay, that is what man with our nature means. So what did then a man with our nature do in First Kings 17 and 18? Even back to 16 to give you a little more context. When he faced the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel and the 450 Baal prophets who were seeking to put him to death later in 18, but even, even before that. What did he do when he faced wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel who wanted to bring upon him intense suffering? Well, if you go back and read that, he trusted and clung to the word of God that was put in his mouth that he was given to speak to Ahab. And trusting that word of God, then he prayed fervently that the Lord do what he told Elijah to tell Ahab what was going to happen. He promised then, Elijah prayed fervently that the Lord do what he actually said he would do. And even though that meant that not sending rain would cause Elijah to starve, because there's no crops to eat and growing and things like that if you don't have the rain, still Elijah, hearing the word of the Lord, clung and trusted that despite what the Lord said, God would actually provide for him. So hearing Elijah's prayer, then God actually did what he promised Elijah that he would do, and what he had given Elijah to speak to Ahab. The rain stopped, and the land dried up for a period of three years and six months. But did Elijah die? No. If you read the stories, God provided for him first by ravens, and then by the widow of Zarephath. 
After three years and six months, Elijah then fervently prayed, knowing what the Lord had said that he would do. Elijah fervently clung to that word and prayed that God actually fulfill his promise to send rain once again, as he promised to do. And God did exactly what he said and promised he would do. So how this is being held up for then, for us Christians, is that in the face of suffering, trials, tribulations, and even joy, pray fervently to the Lord, dear Christian. Cast your anxieties upon him, because he actually does care for you. And as you have, as he has promised you, you, when you call upon him in your day of trouble, he will deliver you. He will give you forgiveness. He will promise you, even in the face of, uh, of a terminal illness, you will live, even though you die. For everyone who looks to the Lord, everyone who believes in him has eternal life, and God will raise them up on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. How will he not give us all that he has promised? How will he not give us forgiveness? How will he not strengthen us and uphold us by his right, might, mighty righteous right hand? Oh, excuse me, tongue twister there. How will he not continually sustain my life here in time and then in eternity? How will I not finally forever be free when he returns in glory from sin, from death, and the devil. So Elijah is being used as an example of pray to the Lord, cling to his promises, and actually believe that God is faithful to his word and will do what he has promised to do for you. Right. This example is is not so much about Elijah's faith in and of itself, rather about the word of God that brought forth this faith from Elijah, which then that's where the prayer came from, too, is that he'd heard what the Lord said, he prayed for what the Lord said, and the Lord gave what the Lord said. I mean, this is this is this is how it works. It's it's not about some sort of like, as we said earlier, conjuring up the right kind of of faith within myself, but rather an outward focus, a focus on what the Lord has said and asking for what what he's promised to give. And then when we do that, there should be no doubt that the Lord will give what he promised. I mean, this was James, you know, oh, it's been a while since we've, we've looked at this, but back in James chapter one, James has talked about this. He says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. And, and the reason that we don't need to doubt in James chapter one is because God gives generously to all with no rebuke. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke us for our requests. He answers our requests as the father who already knows what we need before we ask him. And, and that's the prayer that Elijah had. That's the prayer that, that James is directing us toward right here, is, is not so much about our faith, but upon the promises of God, what he has said, asking for those, knowing that, that he's going to give. And, and look, God gave, just like he did with Elijah. Pastor Philippic, then the, the epistle closes with, with two short verses in, in verses 19 and 20, and again, so we've been talking about the life within the church and prayer particularly. I don't think that context has been left behind here. You've got my brothers, and he's talking about what happens when we start to wander into some kind of error and how we approach each other in that. How does that relate to what we've been talking about, and how does James use it to, to close out his epistle here? Sure. So we talked about it a little earlier. I kind of threw this in, the, in there earlier to kind of set up. 19 and 20 when we talked about um, forgiving sins. But uh, if your fellow Christian wanders into unbelief, 
then James says, go and speak God's saving word of truth, both law and gospel. For God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the heart of God, for, for all people to be saved, right? This is exactly why Christ hangs upon the cross, for the life of the world. So if that is the case, right, then, then loving and caring for your brother, don't leave them in their sin. Don't leave them in air. Speak God's word of truth, law and gospel to them. Because salvation is found in no one else. No other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved than that of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And as Christians, we actually do cling fervently to the promises of God and the word of Christ, knowing that it is the very power of God, right? This is St. Paul in Romans, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the one who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. I mean, this is just it. We actually believe that the word of God effectualizes faith, right? It actually makes it happen and imparts it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So yeah, don't leave your brother without the word of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. It may be hard to go and speak to them. Even if they've sinned against you, it may be hard to, to encourage them to not neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but actually to come and, and, and hear the word of Christ uh, to receive the body and blood. But you're doing that because you know that salvation is found in nowhere else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. So that's, that's what James is really saying and, and getting after with all of this. I, I hear an echo here of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, where he talks about if your brother has sinned against you, go to him and, and seek to restore that that lost brother here here again uh, James has that same care and concern within the church for anyone who wanders from the truth go go bring him back this is this is a holy thing a part of our life together as a a church to to use the the infamous question i suppose that Cain asked am i my brother's keeper the answer is yes i mean how often has james used that word for christians brothers 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 sometimes beloved brothers that's a part of our care for each other within the church to to draw each other back when we see each other wandering into error and james commends that to his to his readers here at the very end of his letter we, we don't get any kind of uh, greetings or anything like that what we have in, in some of paul's letters and in, in terms of the the familiar conclusions that, that maybe we were used to james draws to a conclusion here and, and pastor philip we have about four minutes left here on the morning to to reflect on this text and and the letter as a whole what's what's the great benefit from this text in particular and from the epistle of James for our lives as Christians? Right, so the, the great benefit is for us that God is faithful and he is true to his word. The word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he gives us freely and graciously, undeserved, not right out of his own divine mercy right fatherly divine mercy and goodness yes as we as we often say and recite which is a good thing right this is this is the biblical truth of it is that god actually is faithful to his word he has spoken he will do it so in the face of all these things in your joys and sorrows cling not to yourself and all that you have done 
And do not despair in your sorrows. So in your joys, cling not to yourself. In your sorrows, do not despair that there is no hope. Rather, turn to the one who is strong, who is mighty, who is able to save. That is, cling to the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord, and all that he says, all that he is, and all that he has accomplished for you in the cross and the empty tomb, thereby trampling down death with his own death, and waking us to life everlasting with him in his kingdom that has no end. Cling to that word. He has spoken. He will do it. And I know that that is hard to do when you are even alone in prayer with God, but this is the benefit. This is why he has knit you together as the church, the mystical body, so that you may continually rejoice and proclaim the excellencies to one of another of Christ who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light of salvation. It is what it means to be the church, to gather around Christ's word and sacrament, the pure preaching of his gospel, the administration of the sacraments, to receive that in joy and to love one another, to comfort one another with the gospel, to pray for one another, to hear each other's confession, to forgive uh, each other's sins, to speak God's holy word of law and gospel, even when we err, that in all things we may know that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ, and believe in him and call upon him, and believing and calling upon him, have life in his name. The Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest again today. Thank you. The book of James asks the question, having been saved by God's grace in Jesus, how are we to conduct our relationship with God and one another? James lays that out throughout his epistle, and here in this last part of the text, pray for each other. Pray for yourself in sickness and in joy. Pray for each other. Go to your pastor. Ask him to pray for him. Bear each other's burdens within the body of Christ, trusting in his promises, promises, forgiveness, life, and salvation for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for taking this journey through the book of James with us. Talk to you again next week.